0: Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether
1: it's self-improvement, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Em. And this week we're continuing with Part 2 of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World by Cal Newport. To learn what digital minimalism is, what its foundational principles are, and how to begin your own digital decluttering, step one to becoming a digital minimalist, check out last week's episode on part one, digital minimalism. Before we get started, here's a brief summary of this week's book.
0: Digital minimalists are all around us. They're the calm, happy people who can hold long conversations without furtive glances at their phones. They can get lost in a good book, a project, or a leisurely walk or run. They can have fun with friends and family without the obsessive urge to document the experience. They stay informed about the news of the day, but don't feel overwhelmed by it. They don't experience fear of missing out because they already know which activities provide them meaning and satisfaction. Best-selling author Cal Newport gives us a name for this quiet movement and makes a persuasive case for its urgency in our tech-saturated world. Common sense tips like turning off notifications or occasional rituals like observing a digital Sabbath don't go far enough in helping us take back control of our technological lives, and attempts to unplug completely are complicated by the demands of family, friends, and work. What we need instead is a thoughtful method to decide which tools to use, for what purposes, and under what conditions. Technology is intrinsically neither good nor bad. The key is using it to support your goals and values rather than letting it use you. This book shows the way.
1: So Melissa, last week we covered part one of Cal Newport's book, where we learned what it means to be a digital minimalist and how to start the process. This week, we're going to get into part two where we'll learn the essential practices of the digital minimalist, how to put into action the subtitle of this book, choosing a focused life in a noisy
0: world. Yes, can't wait. So let's open the book and get started. So part two on practicing digital minimalism starts off with something that might seem counterintuitive, which is about solitude or spending time alone. So solitude isn't necessarily about being by yourself. Instead, Cal says that solitude is about what's happening in your brain, not the environment around you. So he defines it as a subjective state in which your mind is free from input from other minds. So he says you can enjoy solitude in a crowded coffee shop or in a subway car, but you can't actually include inputs like books, podcasts, music, TV. In other words, it's not about not being around other people. It's about not letting other people's ideas get into your mind.
1: Yeah, that was so interesting to me because I feel like I often spend – time alone, but I'm realizing it's not quality solitude time because I'm listening to music or I'm playing podcasts, taking a walk, and I'm sending a voice note to a friend in England. Like, I'm actively letting input from other minds come in, and it's not just, like, peacefully observing my own thoughts or the world around me.
0: This was the real gut punch of the book for me, actually. I think this quote really hit hard. He says, The iPod provided, for the first time, the ability to be continuously distracted from your own mind. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the way we treat our phones, even at the slightest hint of boredom, (laughs) you can just glance down at your apps or your websites or really anything on your phone. And it's possible really for the first time maybe Mm -hmm. in recent human history to completely banish solitude from your life. I don't think I had really put two and two together about that, where a phone provides you a way to escape solitude.
1: Continuously.
0: Continuously.
1: Yeah.
0: And I hadn't really thought about the implications on that either. Mm -hmm. But he shares a pretty damning study about young people born between 1995 and 2012, this iGen generation. Maybe you want to talk about them a little bit? Oh, my
1: gosh. I'm thinking about my little cousins. I love you so much. Take care of yourselves. I know. Because they're born after 95. So this was the generation of people who are raised on screens. And they are spending an average of nine hours a day on their screens.
0: And Can we take a second on uh, that? Yeah. Nine hours. Yeah. That's more hours than you sleep. And if you're (laughs) sleeping eight hours a day and you're on a screen nine hours of a day, that's only, well, like six. Yeah. I didn't actually do the math. I'm so sorry. numbers, right. But it's so, (laughs) yeah. it's crazy to me to think about the fact that only six hours are off of a screen.
1: Yeah, and they're not six quality hours because we know they're patched in between looking
0: at screens. Yeah, and to be fair, I I do have a job where I'm on a computer. I'm on a computer most of the day. And so I understand that there's a real shift in work, Mm -hmm. not just in leisure, Mm -hmm. where screens are now a big part of life. Mm -hmm. And the goal of this book is not to say, no screens forever, right. Down with the screens. Like that's right. not what we're about to recommend. Right. But still, that uh that nine hour stat coupled with, I think, some of the troubling psychological impacts of this study. Yeah. Th- that's really where it kind of came to a head for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cal says this generation is really our canary in the coal mine. And True enough, the cases of iGen, he's calling this generation born after 95, cases of iGen's anxiety, depression, and suicide have skyrocketed.
0: Mm -hmm. In particular, the researchers on this study talk about a massive increase in anxiety disorders. And usually they talk about different charts where if you kind of map how prevalent is this issue over time, it's like a soft upward trend. But this was one of the starkest, just absolute skyrocket up on the chart that they've seen. So the researchers on the study say that it's not an exaggeration to say that iGen is on the brink of one of the worst mental health crises in decades. I know. And it makes sense when you think about this entire cohort of people has unintentionally gotten rid of all alone time and all solitude. Right. So they don't even really know what it's like to be in their own thoughts. Right. And on top of that, once they are alone with their thoughts, that's where the anxiety kicks in. They feel like they should be connected to something else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They weren't taught to learn how to be alone or to process their emotions Mm -hmm. or even build strong relationships outside of the use of technology. And they're constantly and frantically processing and sending messages. So, oh my gosh, I feel anxious just
0: thinking about that. Same. And he says, simply put, humans are not wired to be constantly wired. Yeah. But think about you mentioned their emotions. There's so much important, I I use the word work, it's not really work, but important work that you're doing when you are alone with your thoughts. Imagine just reflecting on your own day or imagining a conversation with somebody in your life. There's a process where you're kind of piecing through how it went and you're learning what your emotions feel like and how you respond to them. But if you're constantly attached to a phone, you can't do any of that. Right. And I grew up, Obviously, before 1995. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not, we are not in this generation, this iGen, but I can't imagine never learning what that's like. Yeah. If you're constantly attached to a screen, to no fault of their own, exactly. It was just never something that they had to really deal with. Right. I can't fathom, it really, this is not relatable to me, and I'm grateful for that, but this is the reality of the future generations as well.
1: Yeah. And it's relatable to me in a little bit because we are still of the data set who are using our screens for two hours a day of like social media time. And right, so it's, we can't really conceive of nine, but I I hit that two hour
0: number some days, I'm sure. Oh yeah, Um, I can definitely relate to the pull of technology. But I also feel like I do spend more time maybe thinking about my own thoughts. There is part of this chapter where, he talks about like cell phones as a vital appendage. Mm-hmm. And this rise of the cell phone as this, he uses that term, vital appendage. Mm-hmm. For young people, they're worrying that even a temporary disconnection from their cell phone could yeah. mean that they're missing something else. Yeah, And they talk about movie theaters. Yeah, when I was a kid, even though I didn't have my own cell phone until right. I was a teenager, the thought of using a cell phone in a movie theater to me, like unfathomable. Yeah, absurd. Totally right. absurd. And nowadays I'm noticing that Most movie theaters aren't really putting up that fight anymore. No. Probably because they know that they're going to lose customers. Right. But I don't personally feel anxiety being away from my phone in a movie theater.
1: No, I feel good. (laughs) I feel
0: great. But maybe for listeners who... Are not in the iGen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Imagine feeling anxious during a movie, yeah. so anxious that you couldn't even check your phone. Right. It's not about, oh, like kids these days in social media. Right. It's the way that their brains have been wired yeah. because of the time that they grew up in. Right. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, f- I really feel for them. I do too. Yeah.
1: So there are a couple practices in this first chapter about spending time alone, the value of solitude, and the first thing we can just start doing is leave your phone at home. Or it might be as easy as leave it in the glove compartment. So you go to the movie and you don't want to feel the compulsive need to check your phone, just stick it in the glove compartment of your
0: car before you go into the movie. Exactly. There are a lot of actually, I think, very doable recommendations yep. in this chapter about solitude. Because when I, I think used to think about the word solitude, I imagined seclusion right but they're very different so one example of a way that you can embrace solitude is by taking long walks and this is a good example like em was talking about of maybe not bringing your phone with you Mm -hmm. i loved this quote from the book so i'm going to read it directly because he recommends he says on a regular basis go for long walks preferably somewhere scenic take these walks alone which means not just by yourself but also if possible without your phone Mm -hmm. and this is the part i thought was funny He says, if you're wearing headphones or monitoring a text message chain or, God forbid, narrating the stroll on Instagram, (laughs) you're not really walking and, therefore, you're not really going to experience this practice's greatest benefits. The reason why I just thought that was funny is because I do – like, I did used to see people on Instagram talking about their walks or just monitoring their everyday life. Yeah. So now you've taken a solo activity and made it a group activity. Yeah. 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 Or not – it's not really a group activity, well, but you're definitely not alone anymore. You're
1: not alone. Yeah, you're not free from the input of other minds, which is what solitude is all about. And I am totally guilty of this. I take walks often, like maybe four or five times a week and for like at least 30 minutes to 45 minutes. I I don't know if that qualifies by Cal standards as a long walk, but – I think so. It feels long to me. I decree it to be a long yeah, walk. thank you. Mm-hmm. But I often – listen to a podcast or music, or I try not to text when I'm walking because that is like really distracting and I'm not super coordinated. doesn't work out great for me, (laughs) but I, sometimes I'm leaving my friend like a long voice note. And so I'm, I'm not free from that input. Just this week, I started taking those walks alone and (laughs) it's so funny, but I know it's also springtime, but the trees are greener. the birds are chirping louder. Like I truly feel like my appreciation of the nature around me or the you know, colors of the shutters on the brick house are more beautiful um, because I actually was noticing them without other inputs coming into my brain that I had to process constantly.
0: I think you bring up a good point, which is that first of all, it's a much different experience yeah. when you were embracing it as a moment of solitude. Yeah. That said, I think Cal wouldn't argue with this either. Taking a walk while you listen to a podcast or catch up with a family mm-hmm. member is still a good idea. Yeah, right. You can do both. Yes. His argument is that you need solitude. Right. Walks could be a way to do that, but you can still walk for other purposes too. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe walking isn't for you though. Another option he gives for solitude is thinking by writing. Yeah. So writing a letter to yourself, he says, is a great way to have this kind of solitude because it not only frees you from outside inputs – But it also kind of gives you an outlet. Yeah. And I actually think that I use this more than walking, where I will journal or just kind of write out what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. as a way to brain dump it onto a page. Yeah. There's something about just getting it out in writing versus letting it stew in my brain Mm -hmm. that for me is very productive. Clarifying. Very clarifying, exactly. And it's not about writing something that is good or that other people will see. And frankly, it's not even really something that I would intend to read again. Right. A lot of times when I'm writing, it's just to – think through something. Yeah. It's not meant to be like a capture of a great memory. Yeah. So I have different approaches when I write for myself even. And one of them I think is this practice of solitude where I'm just trying to be alone with my thoughts, mm-hmm. but sitting in a room by myself, pondering existence. Like that just doesn't work for me. Yeah. I need an outlet. I need to still be doing something.
1: Yeah. I think this could be one of the best tools that, that I, Jen, mm-hmm. kids born after 95 could do because it couples the act of solitude with processing your thoughts. So you're learning emotional awareness, emotional regulation skills. You're starting to understand what's happening in your thoughts and your world. And it could feel very productive to people who are just starting to introduce total
0: alone time. Yeah. And a last thought on solitude is that not every moment alone has to be a moment of solitude. Yeah. If you enjoy listening to a specific podcast on your commute into work, that's a great practice. We're not recommending that every single moment that you're by yourself has to also be solitude. Right, exactly. What we're saying instead is that you should have some regular opportunities where you do experience solitude. Right. So those are different. Being by yourself and solitude, different things. Yes. All right, so the next section is called don't click like. And this was – something we talked about in a previous episode, although I don't remember which one, where I said that I think the like button is one of the worst things to ever happen to humankind. Mm -hmm. I don't think I held back my opinion on that. (laughs) And in this chapter, Cal Newport gives – a much better researched opinion on (laughs) the topic. Your gut instinct was still right, though. I still could feel that it was achy and gross. Yeah. (laughs) But he brought in research. So he said studies from the University of Pittsburgh led by a man named Brian Primack in 2017 show that the more someone used social media, the more likely they were to be lonely. Mm -hmm. And then this was not the same study, but another woman named Holly Shekia has a suspect reason. And she says that the more you use social media to interact with your network, what's really happening is the less time you devote yep. to offline communication. Right. So the problem isn't necessarily that using social media itself makes you unhappy. But instead, the key issue is that using social media tends to take people away from the real world socializing that's massively more valuable. Yeah, yeah. That made so much sense to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: He mentions another
1: study on Facebook specifically, which showed that overall the use of Facebook was negatively associated with well being. So, measures of physical health, mental health, and
0: life satisfaction. Yeah, tons of studies, to his credit, he says go either way. There are mm-hmm. studies that show that social media is negative, and most of them do go that direction. Some I think allude to maybe what I would call like a vanity metric. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody that you know likes something, you will feel a positive emotion. Right. So it's not that you will never experience joy if you're on social media. Instead, it's this biggest underlying issue that any time you're spending on social media is time that you are not spending connecting with real people. Right. And I think it was Sherry Turkle in her 2015 Mm -hmm. book, Reclaiming Conversation, who drew this distinction between these two terms, connection and conversation. Mm -hmm. This was the real aha for the chapter for Mm me. So she says, connection is a low bandwidth interaction that defines our online and social lives. So a connection could be anything, social media, a Mm -hmm. comment, a like, that's a connection. It's brief. But a conversation is much richer. It's the high bandwidth communication that defines real world encounters Mm -hmm. between humans. And she also mentions like face-to-face, video chat, phone call. Those all count, but you need nuanced social cues that you cannot get if you just comment on somebody's photo.
1: Right. Those verbal cues, seeing somebody's facial expressions. To take that example even further, she said, face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard, of being understood. So again, those incredibly human skills that are sort of slipping away the more we replace that with um, this time spent on technology.
0: Definitely. If you imagine even just commenting on a photo, words are just such a small part of Mm -hmm. human communication. Yeah. Instead, imagine sitting next to a friend and the way that she says, like, I'm okay. Yeah. Even just that phrase, it can mean so many things when you get all the body language going and you see the look on her face you don't get any of that on social media. Right. And I've personally had the experience where when I'm reading words that somebody mm-hmm. else has written, you have to kind of add in your own sense of how they were feeling. Yeah. And it's just your own best guess. right? It totally strips them of the opportunity to have their own facial cues yeah. and body language and all of that. So I can see why this distinction between connection and actual conversation is so different. Absolutely. Cal points out that if we
1: start to... Of reclaim this type of social interaction, having these quality conversations with the people in our lives instead of engaging on social media or on technology in general. Like think about texting a friend over, you know, a couple hours over the course of a day versus spending an hour or two with them face to face. He says that just by beginning to do this in practice, your social circle will at first seem to contract because you're just interacting with far fewer people. But the quality connections you'll have will actually expand that is really important I think to mm-hmm. consider
0: a lot of digital minimalism seems to focus on quality yeah. over quantity yeah and that's not how a lot of us are thinking right. in a world that is now measured by likes and followers mm-hmm. yeah social media is turning it into a quantity game instead yeah which is not necessarily helpful. Yeah. But unfortunately, it is a way that people can now measure their value.
1: Yeah. And it, it's tricky for me. So thinking about, you know, being a digital minimalist, this was one of the hardest things for me to sort of get my head around was all right, well, if I'm not going to be on Facebook and Instagram, or if I'm potentially going to start unfollowing or unfriending certain people, that like I they're not really in my life. I started to worry about the people who are on the periphery, like they're not quite. My close circle of friends, they're not the people that I don't really need to ever hear from. And that made me feel anxious, thinking about like cutting certain people out. But the truth of the matter is, is that if they are people that I truly wanna spend time with or if they wanna spend time with me, they'll find a way to reach out or I'll find a way to spend time with them. And that's what's important. But it it can feel a little scary, I think, to imagine removing people from your life. It's like, it seems harsh.
0: Yeah. And another thing that seems harsh is, getting back to the topic of this chapter, why shouldn't you like things? Right, The like button versus why shouldn't you have interests? He says that things like the like button are easy clicks. It's a fun way to nudge a friend, but instead you could start treating them as poison to your (laughs) attempts to cultivate a meaningful social life. So the comments, the like button – he wants you to remain silent. And he says, the reason I'm suggesting such a hard stance against these seemingly innocuous interactions is that they teach your mind that connection is a reasonable alternative to conversation. Yeah, That was when this concept kind of clicked for me. Mm-hmm. The more time you're spending making little connections, yep. the less time you can spend making larger, meaningful yep. conversations. Right. And in this case, it's not that The sum of a lot of small things can equal the sum of a few large things. Mm -hmm. It was your great example about if you text a friend throughout the day versus calling them. Calling somebody even for 15 minutes is going to have a much larger net gain for you and your relationship than texting occasionally throughout a full day. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But it's hard to see that in the moment. It is hard to see that in the moment.
1: His next. Practice in this chapter, don't click like, is also to consolidate your texting. So don't text somebody throughout the entire day. Like choose certain points of your day at which you will make plans or you know, make sure your kid's getting picked up from soccer practice or whatever. But this in general, like allows you to be more present to what you're actually doing throughout the course of the day. And it reduces your anxiety because you're not being constantly disrupted, but it of course upgrades the nature of your relationships because you're forced to be more intentional with those people who are in your inner circle that you do want to sort of give your time to your most valuable resource to. Before we move on to the next chapter on
0: reclaiming leisure, here's a quick break. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart to get started today. Why Audible. Audible content includes
1: an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook
0: publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Of course, we recommend you use your free book to check out Digital Minimalism, but you can choose any book you'd like. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart. Again, that's audibletrial.com booksmart for your free audiobook. We've spent a lot of time talking about digital decluttering and how to remove optional technologies from your life. But now the big question remains, what do I do with all of this time? That's where Cal Newport brings up the concept about reclaiming leisure. He says the most successful digital minimalists tend to start their conversion by, he says, renovating what they do with their free time, cultivating high quality leisure before culling the worst of their digital habits. So... For the next section of our podcast, we're going to talk about what high-quality leisure means. Right. Cal says, a life well-lived
1: requires activities that serve no purpose other than the satisfaction that the activity itself generates. That is a tricky concept, I think, in a society obsessed with productivity and output, but
0: I love the idea of it. This whole section was a little tricky yes. in a good way. Made me yes, think. Yep. But part of leisure lesson number one, which we'll get into now, is about prioritizing demanding activity over passive consumption. And this one was hard for me because I think a lot of us come home at the end of a long day and we're like, I'm done. Let me starfish on my couch. Like I don't want to do anything. (laughs) But his argument is that the more demanding activities are in fact more rewarding, more leisurely, more better, more everything. And more energizing. And more energizing. Yeah. And that's the one where I was like, hmm, Cal, <laughs> more energizing to do more work like, after my work day? <laughs> like, I don't know about that. I think a good example was this man named Pete who I believe runs a blog called Mr. Money Mustache. And he explains, I never understood the joy of watching other people play sports, can't stand tourist attractions, don't sit on the beach unless there's a really big sandcastle that needs to be made, and I don't care about what the celebrities and politicians are doing. Instead of all this, I seem to get satisfaction only from making stuff. Or maybe a better description would be solving problems and making improvements. Now, this does not scream leisure Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. But then when he gets into learning about how to do different things Mm -hmm. and the skills that it takes, and Mm -hmm. I guess I started to see where he was coming from. I actually just in this quote in particular thought it was hilarious where he mentions that he doesn't understand the joy of watching other people play sports. <laughs> just be I like watching sports. Yeah. But I think it's hilarious when we use the royal we. Like we we really should have and it's like, scored that touchdown yeah. and I'm like, you We're we on the field, huh? we're not yeah. running <laughs> right. out of breath. We were watching popcorn <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the stands. And again, I love I love watching sports, but yeah. There's a very different type of leisure that comes yeah. from watching a sport compared mm-hmm. to like building something with your hands or doing something in your
1: yard. I like that he also, this leisure lesson number one, prioritized demanding activity over passive consumption. Like he's also mentioning that this demanding activity could be demanding in our brains. Like those are brain challenges. It's almost like we're giving our brains a new chew toy because we can't look at social media. We can't like expend energy that way. So we have to give it something else to occupy it. That's how I sort of saw that demanding activity combined with like somebody who wants to be crafty and build things and solve puzzles yeah. like yeah i can i can see how that would be really fun great point it doesn't have to be a physical yeah. demanding task yeah. so leisure lesson two is to use skills to produce valuable things in the physical world and a big example of this is making crafts and cal describes that as any activity where you apply skill to create something valuable in the world woodworking knitting creating music playing a sport I think the word valuable doesn't even need to be there. It's just creating something cool in the world or something you enjoy putting into the world. Like playing a sport isn't necessarily like a tangible thing, but you're using
0: skill, you're expending energy, you're improving your abilities. Exactly. And you could also do something like playing an instrument that still counts as a craft. He's not literally suggesting you have to get out there and create your own guitar and then (laughs) strum it with your own two hands. It's more about using your hands to do something. Yeah, And this comes up a little later, but I think it's relevant here where he says that handiness, just, you know, fixing things around your home is generally rarer today. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, it's not essential or, you know, they can outsource that kind of thing, but there is a certain satisfaction in, you know, fixing something in your own home or learning how to be handy, Mm -hmm. just like learning how to create something with your hands, play an instrument, play a sport. Mm -hmm. It's just doing something without a screen is Mm -hmm. what it really comes down to. Right. Something I will add is that screens can – Aid with a lot of this. Right. He talks about learning skills on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Or for me, I now have a computer software that helps me play the piano and puts my mm. sheet music up on the screen. Yeah. So it's not really that the screen can't be there at all. Right. But in both of those cases, with learning how to build something with, you know, woodworking mm-hmm. from YouTube or the piano, it's not the primary element. It's like the instructional supplement. Exactly.
1: My brother and I renovated our entire house basically learning how to do things on YouTube. So you use the technology to support the value and what's important in your life. I feel like that
0: can't be stressed enough that the goal of this book is not to say live a life without screens. It's just to figure out where does that technology support you and where is it maybe a default and maybe not serving you. Right. What's the best use of it? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So leisure lesson
1: number three is to seek activities that require real-world, structured social
0: interactions. So really what this part comes down to is joining groups. Yeah. He gives a couple examples of a punny named uh, Snakes (laughs) and Lattes, board game cafe where people go and then you can choose games and you can play together. Uh, But even examples like CrossFit is wildly successful in the fitness world. And what's much different about CrossFit compared to a regular gym is that you must do the workouts in a group with other people, the workout of the day. So whether it's a fitness activity or the leisure like the board games, this whole section is really about the benefit of doing things with other people. Yeah. Again, it's really about how you can be in conversation or in a sense of togetherness instead of just liking something from a distance. Yeah, he
1: talked about that, thinking about CrossFit, like that supercharged socializing. It's like interactions with high intensity levels that we just don't do a ton of in our everyday life. And mm-hmm. so it's it adds like a real spark of fun in our lives. One of the issues I had with this leisure lesson in particular is he basically says, join groups, join groups. And for somebody who I guess is an introvert and is busy the idea for me of just joining groups willy-nilly even though there are things i'd be excited about like hiking group or yoga group or a board game night like to me that felt really overwhelming and like almost anxiety producing so for somebody like me i think this leisure lesson would be more about planning more things with like small groups or one-on-one nights with friends like that i think was what would really Add a sense of like that good high quality conversation
0: in my life. Um, I think that's a great point. A group really only needs you and one other person. Yeah. It also doesn't have to be a big production. Mm-hmm. I do know that you have some semi professional groups that you yep. do organize. So you do have groups in your life for sure, even as an introvert. But kind of like earlier when we mentioned that not every moment alone has to be solitude. Right. Not every moment of your social life has to be in a yeah. large group. Yeah. Or any group at all, really. Yeah. So I think the big takeaway here is that doing things with other people can be enjoyable and can bring a lot of satisfaction. Mm -hmm. The size of the group, the frequency with which you are with groups doesn't matter. Right. But probably some elements of an average week should include you spending time with others. Yeah. And I think probably that will happen by default
1: because – if you're doing this digital decluttering intentionally, and you're suddenly removing, um, you know, the majority of your texting, your social media habits, hopefully you're replacing all of that time with activities like we're suggesting, um, like physically or mentally stimulating activities, or crafty things, and with your friends, exactly, people who are important
0: to you. To wrap up this chapter, he talks about the importance of planning. So he recommends scheduling like leisure in advance but specifically two things one he recommends scheduling low quality leisure time mm-hmm. like maybe evenings after work you know you want to come home and just watch maybe an hour of a TV show that you really enjoy totally fine to do yep but he also recommends then including some higher quality leisure as well right. and the point here is he thinks maybe readers might see this and think oh you know this is going to take the leisure out of it if it's so planned but It's more about making sure you don't fall into the trap of having blank space and then Mm -hmm. filling it accidentally with low-quality leisure. Um, So I don't think that this has to be a huge task. I think it could be as easy as deciding that on Tuesday you're going to get a drink with a friend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He has a formal way of doing this if you like formal planning, which I very much do. Mm -hmm. So he says you can create seasonal leisure plans for yourself, so three or four times a year. For him, he does the beginning of fall. Uh, the beginning of winter and the beginning of summer, he just decides, like, what are the big leisure goals he has and what are the habits he's going to uphold during that time to bring those things into his life. And then on a weekly basis, he checks in with his goals and makes those actual plans to make sure he's hanging out with friends or going to events, practicing the guitar, whatever it may be. Yeah, I exactly. love that. I was gonna I'm totally gonna do it.
0: <laughs> I was gonna add that a good example of a seasonal leisure plan could be that you want to learn all of the guitar songs from your favorite album. So that's what we're talking about with this leisure plan is maybe a craft, a skill, a group, just one of these that you want to focus on for a couple of months. Because I think something that could feel intimidating by the end of reading this book is how many new things you could be trying. Yeah. So I like this approach because to me, it says I'm just going to focus on one thing at a time, which at least in my life has been a much better way to get things to stick. Yeah, feels more practical, less overwhelming. Exactly. In a dramatically titled final chapter, Cal Newport talks about joining the attention resistance. So a little bit of the first part in this chapter talks about the fact that Facebook and probably other social media companies as well don't really want you thinking too critically about how you use your phone. Mm -hmm. The status of cultural ubiquity, he says, Mm -hmm. is ideal for Facebook because it pressures people to remain users without having to sell them on concrete benefits.
1: <sighs> Stupid
0: Facebook. I know. it's. I think the part that was really crazy, he says, like, assuming you use Facebook, thinking about the most important parts of what Facebook yeah. provides, imagine that Facebook started charging you by the minute. I know. <laughs> how much time would you really need to spend in the typical week to keep up with your list of important Facebook activities? Listeners can think on that for a second. If you had to pay for Facebook, mm-hmm. how many minutes per week would you actually spend? And for most people, he says the answer is surprisingly small, maybe 20 to 30 minutes per week. Yeah. And that's in contrast with the 350 minutes per week that people spend on average on Facebook services. 55 minutes a day. So that's $55 a day
1: if that's you think so about it. That's so many dollars. so many
0: dollars. Yeah. I think what's really insane about this whole part is that a lot of people are on Facebook because, quote, Everyone is. Right. That's the cultural ubiquity he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Where when you consider joining Facebook, which I'm sure nobody has thought about in a while because you've all probably been on Facebook for years, right? But you just do it because everyone's doing it. Right. It's not like when you go to the store and you buy a product and you say, Oh, I'm buying this kitchen device because I want to do X thing. I want to chop vegetables in a better way. Yeah. Facebook, it's just, Oh, I guess everyone is on Facebook. I guess I should be on Facebook. And even now, like, I don't really enjoy. Much Mm -hmm. out of Facebook. The thing that I in this exercise would have to pay for are events. Yeah. I do get invited to events on Facebook Mm -hmm. and I would pay uh, like 10 minutes max a week. Yeah. Probably most weeks I could just go on for a minute and check on a Saturday Mm -hmm. and see if I have anything.
1: Yeah. But that's really it for me. Yeah. I thought about that too. I already use a Chrome add on called Stay Focused and it. Limits my Facebook time to ten minutes a day, and I almost never hit that limit. So I was thinking, yeah, like five or ten bucks a week, I would feel fine about giving that to Facebook. I wouldn't feel good about it still, Mm -hmm. even knowing how I was using it, but I'd feel fine. I think that's a really provocative question. I'm just imagine Facebook is charging you by the minute. Mm -hmm. So for people who feel like they really intentionally do not want to be giving Facebook their money, their time. Consider yourselves part of the attention resistance movement, uh, which I freaking love. Cal says, the attention resistance movement is made up of individuals who combine high-tech tools with disciplined operating procedures to conduct surgical strikes on popular attention economy services, dropping in to extract value and then slipping away before the attention traps set by these companies can spring shut. This makes me feel like we are like
0: high Writing level into battle. spies. Like, yeah, <laughs> just like dropping
1: into like the museum, grabbing the diamond, like, <laughs> <laughs> being elevated up by wire. Oh yeah. But I think it's, I think that's a really empowering mental picture, but it's like, we are part of a resistance and they're
0: the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. What was really fascinating in this chapter was the term attention economy. Yeah, I had never heard that before. Hmm. Really, it's just the concept that a lot of companies benefit by having your attention. The longer you're in their app on their website, the more money they stand to make, whether it's from advertisers or just some other most likely sponsorship opportunity. Mm -hmm. Your time is their money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I had just never thought of it in that way before, about how much time and money they are spending on keeping us there. But why that's important, I think, to digital minimalists is that the service itself might still be good. Facebook may still have a benefit for you. Mm-hmm. It's more about separating what am I getting out of Facebook right. versus how much of my attention is Facebook taking from me. Mm-hmm. So if instead you identified, for me, I use Facebook for events, yeah. now that gives me a pretty clear reason to just use it. Like I said, I do a check-in mm-hmm. now like on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really take a lot out of my life. I don't feel an addictive pull to Facebook. Right. Something harder for me is Instagram. Yeah. I'm used to having apps on my phone. And as part of reading this book, I deleted all my social media apps mm-hmm. from my phone other than Snapchat because mm-hmm. I only use it as a messenger to yeah. frankly see dog photos from my sisters. <laughs> so again, when I think about how I'm using it, it's, it's not taking a lot of my yeah. attention. I might open up a snap or two right. every couple of days. Right. But Instagram, it's almost like, the habit of picking up the phone and clicking on I the know. app, it's just such a big part mm-hmm. of my former day. Mm-hmm. But I don't need that in my life. Right. I could check Instagram once a week and probably get enough out of it. Right. So this really forced me to come to terms with how much of my attention am I willing to part with?
1: Right. Yeah. And that's that step one of the digital decluttering process is defining your rules. Mm-hmm. Like what are you going to use and how will you use it? Back to what you previously said about how it—you know these companies are making money off of our attention. Facebook derives 88% of its earnings from mobile usage. Isn't and that crazy? Yeah, that was as of 2017. And so we can only imagine it's more now. But it relates to the first like actionable practice in this chapter for joining their resistance, which is just delete social media from your phone. Because if you take Facebook off your phone, then you
0: are not letting Facebook have some of your money. Yeah. This is something he mentions throughout the book, like delete social media from yeah. your phone. Even if this idea scares you, I would maybe encourage listeners to give it a shot. I feel like it's more reason to do it if it scares you. Exactly. Because I started doing this and it's kind of terrifying to realize how often you pick up your phone yep. and don't really need it. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's almost a conditioned loop that's just happening, yep. but I don't really need Instagram. For me, yeah. that was the most addictive yeah. one. Like I'm not getting satisfaction out of it. Yeah, Frankly, I wasn't even posting that often. Right. It was just there. Yeah. And now I can still check it on my computer if I want, mm-hmm. but just making it slightly less convenient yeah. has really changed how much of my attention it's getting. Yeah. Before doing the actual decluttering,
1: I would delete Instagram off my phone every time I was done using it. And just the fact that I'd have to go to the app store, download it again, mm-hmm. enter my password again, it was very cumbersome. And it just prevented me from opening it sometimes because it was like, oh, I it gave me a second to pause and think about why I was actually going to use it. I think that's really key is you need a way to have a second to pause yeah. to ask why you're using it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the next principle is related to social media again, and it's to
0: use social media like a professional. I really like this example. He talks about Jennifer, who is a professional social media woman. Right. So in this case, it's more about imagine you are like representing yourself right. as a brand. You would not waste hours. Right going through Twitter, whatever the platform might be, you would just figure out what content you would need to post on behalf of the business that you work for, the client, exactly. And then you would only take actions that were meaningful Mm -hmm. because you would be presumably doing other things in your job and you would have a busy day. And so I really liked this recommendation about treating social media like you are a professional. Mm -hmm. To me, it just says, think about why you're using it, post only what you need, read only what is beneficial, cut through the noise, leave everything else.
1: Yeah. And use these networks to your own advantage. So again, if you're going to be a professional, what are the ways these will be truly advantageous to your life, your career, whatever it is. Exactly. The next practice is to embrace slow media. And this relates to what we were saying about, think about your behavior. When you log into your computer, you probably check your email, you check the news, you check your favorite sports sites or social media sites. We all have sort of a routine that we fall into, but This routinized pattern, without us being aware of it, just takes up a huge chunk of our time at the beginning of our day or whenever we trigger ourselves to go into this pattern. Um, For me, I know it's like I get to my computer, I check my personal email, I have two professional email accounts, and I look at any links that I want to along the way that have come up via email, and then I look at Facebook or Uh, the dating app if I'm using it currently. And it's like, before I know it, at least 20 or 30 minutes goes by.
0: Yeah. I had never thought of this kind of, like you said, the ritualistic nature of this sequence that maybe when you wake up, you check a certain app and then maybe on your lunch break, you do something else. Or when you get into work, maybe you have a routine. Mm -hmm. And I loved this specific quote. He says, once the sequence is activated, it unfolds on autopilot. The slightest hint of boredom becomes a tripwire to activate this whole hulking Rube Goldberg apparatus. So for those not familiar, the Rube Goldberg concept is like you set a ball at the beginning and then it hits a chain of dominoes and the dominoes hit something else. And then at the end, it's just kind of a series of events that continue on and on. That was a very powerful visual for me because I do think, especially he mentions this about people's news cycle. Mm -hmm. Maybe you get breaking news in one place and then you check some other websites and it's just a constant this into that into the Mm -hmm. next. It takes a lot of time. And specifically in relation to slow media and slow consumption, he says that often breaking news is not going to give you the best information. (sighs) It's more of a dopamine hit, Mm -hmm. perhaps more like the like button. Mm -hmm. Probably waiting until the next day when you can get the full article. Right. You'll be more efficient and get better information. Right. But that's not how a lot of us are consuming news these days. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I totally relate to that feeling of like all of that time passing
1: as you're clicking through this pattern of sites and then blinking at the clock, wondering how you got there at the end of it.
0: Yeah. We've quoted the two hours a day people spend on social yeah. media. That's just social media. I mean, right. the screen time, the news, yeah. all of it really adds up. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is because we are in this habit loop. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, our phones are always on us. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to start the habit loop because yeah. all you have to do is pick up your phone. Maybe you got a text message. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, hmm, looking at my phone. What else could I do on here? Maybe you're just waiting for yeah. the dentist or you're on a subway. Right. There are so many little moments that now we can just fill Right. And instead of being accustomed to solitude, your autopilot just kicks right into gear. Right. As soon as we have that sliver of boredom, we have a way to just fill it up. I think that's why removing things from your phone in particular is Mm -hmm. such a meaningful but simple to do task Mm -hmm. because it doesn't remove things from your life. Right. It just says, okay, I'm not going to check my email on my phone or I'm not going to check Facebook Mm -hmm. on my phone. You can still go to a computer, but you have to think it through a little more and make sure you really want it first. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. In
1: conclusion, digital minimalists see new technologies as tools to be used to support things they deeply value, not as sources of value themselves. They don't accept the idea that offering some small benefit is justification for allowing an attention-gobbling service into their lives, and are instead interested in applying new technology in highly selective and intentional ways that yield big wins. Just as important, they're comfortable missing out on everything else. This is not a one-time process and it does require constant adjustments, but the key to sustained success is accepting that it's not really about technology. It is more about the quality of your life. Before we go, here's the bookmarked activity for you to try, which we'll both also be working on for next week's episode,
0: which will be our own personal notes on reading this book. As you get ready to embark on your own digital decluttering, think about which practices you want to personally adopt. Which high quality leisure activities will you schedule into your life? How will you limit low quality distractions? What will you include in your seasonal and weekly leisure plans?
1: Have you defined the rules of your digital decluttering? Which technologies will you declutter? Which are truly optional? What's on your list of banned technologies? And do you have operating procedures for those you still need to use? Get ready to set a start date for your own digital
0: decluttering if you want to join me because that's exactly what I'm going to do in the next episode. Thanks for joining us this week. To view the complete show notes and learn more about digital minimalism, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash 15. We've also included our top takeaways and the bookmarked activity for easy reference. Once you've read the book,
1: we'd love to hear about it. Let us know if you're starting a digital decluttering or if you're starting to freak out about the process by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929 515 book
0: That's 929-515-BOOK or 2665. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, you can support our show by providing us with coffee. For as little as $5, you can fuel Booksmart and us while we make great new content for you. In addition to coffee, this also helps us cover necessary podcast costs like equipment and audio production. No pressure, but we really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.